This audio may contain copyrighted material. Such material is made available for educational purposes only. This constitutes a fair use of any such copyrighted material as provided for in Title 17 U.S.C. Section 106A-117 of the U.S. Copyright Law. And now, here's today's story. A group of eight scuba divers enter an alien and uncharted cave seeking adventure. They break rules they themselves had set as safety precautions, and the price would be high. Eight divers swam into the inky blackness of an underwater cave. How many would make it back to the surface alive? I'm going to tell you their story. But you need to strap in. It's going to be a dark ride. entrance to the sinkhole, known as the shaft, was discovered in the year 1938 in a farmer's field commonly known as Thompson's Paddock. This is located a few kilometers south of Mount Gambier in South Australia. The farmer who was moving some horses to the opposite side of his pasture became alarmed when one of the horses stumbled and went partially down to the ground. Before the farmer could get to the horse to see if it were injured, it had regained its stance and appeared unharmed. As the farmer made it to where the animal had stumbled, he noticed that the horse had created a small hole in the earth where none had previously existed. The hole was about a foot or 0.3 meters in circumference. The farmer was intrigued by where the hole might lead and knelt beside it, leaned over and peered down. As his eyes adjusted to what he was seeing, he realized that he could see what appeared to be crystal clear water, roughly 20 feet or 6.1 meters below him. Later, the hole was opened up to a little over three feet or roughly one meter in diameter in order to allow for more opportunity to access what was below. At some point, a weighted line was lowered down through the hole to see how deep the water was. The line stopped at approximately 120 feet of depth, roughly 36.6 meters, and that was assumed to be the bottom But was it? The shaft, as the sinkhole came to be known, widens considerably from the very small hole, allowing sunlight into its previously 
perpetually black environs. This is actually the basis for the name The Shaft. The fact that at certain times of day, a sunlit shaft shines through the hole in the dome and strikes the water below, causing a brilliant blue column in the subterranean water that lights up the entire cavern. The shaft of sapphire blue light extends in places to a depth of almost 200 feet, or around 60 meters. During the 1960s, a local diver squeezed through the tiny hole in the pasture, lowered himself down the almost 20 feet to the water's surface, and made the first dive into the shaft to a depth of about 69 feet or 21 meters. Because of the very small size of the opening from the pasture through the roof of the sinkhole and the distance of the drop until the surface of the water is reached, divers and their equipment must be lowered in separately, with divers donning their gear while treading water, or they can place their gear on a narrow dry ledge that runs along one side of the cave, just above the water line. As more divers tested the waters of the shaft, some information gathering took place, and it was learned that what was originally thought to be the bottom of the water-filled cave was actually the top of a pile of rubble which rose from the depths. The original weighted line lowered into the hole had come to rest on top of this rock pile, and it ran much deeper than had first been thought. From the top of the rock pile, two routes are available with tunnels running in two primary directions, one to the east and the other to the northwest. The northwest tunnel, the more navigable of the two, has a more or less gradual descent and extends to a depth of about 260 feet, which is 80 meters. The eastern tunnel is much narrower and descends more vertically than the northwest tunnel. It has partial restrictions due to obstructions in the tunnel and requires more careful navigation. This tunnel eventually drops to a depth of roughly 407 feet or 124 meters. It's important to note that nitrogen narcosis, also known as the rapture of the deep, takes place at depths as shallow as 100 feet. The symptoms of nitrogen narcosis won't get worse unless the diver continues deeper into the waters, with the most profound impairment taking place at a depth of around 300 feet or 91 meters. Common symptoms of nitrogen narcosis include poor judgment, short-term memory loss, trouble concentrating, a sense of drunkenness or euphoria, disorientation, reduced nerve and muscle function, hyper-focusing on a specific area, and finally, hallucinations. When a diver returns to the surface, these symptoms will normally disappear soon thereafter, but a combination of these symptoms 
will often cause divers to apparently seek their own demise by diving even deeper. This is just one of the reasons why divers are always encouraged to dive with a dive buddy so that both may monitor each other and provide help if needed. This is especially true for the unforgiving sport of cave diving. On the 26th of May, 1973, a group of nine experienced open water divers arrived in the Mount Gambier area of South Australia, eager to dive the much talked about waters of the shaft. Although they had all had extensive dive time in open water, none of them were qualified cave divers. The divers spent the day of May 27th exploring the area around the rock pile down to a depth of about 180 feet or 55 meters. The group made plans to return the next morning and continue their adventure. It should be noted that the rock pile is generally considered to be the final boundary for relatively safe recreational diving. Below that point, sunlight failed to penetrate the dark water, which at that time was still mostly unexplored and unmapped. The sunless depths of the cavern below the rock pile were covered in mud-like silt, which when kicked by a careless diver's flipper could cause an instant blackout with it being impossible to even see a dive light held directly in front of the face mask. This condition is known by divers as silting out, and it can take many hours for the silt to settle and for visibility to return. Furthermore, at depths below the rock pile, nitrogen narcosis was a very real threat. Modern divers will use a mixture of helium along with air in order to help decrease the chance of nitrogen narcosis. But this was 1973, and such information was not as widely available at that time. On the morning of May 28, 1973, the nine divers, including three siblings, Glenn Millot, brother Stephen Millot, and sister Christine Millot, along with Gordon Roberts, John Bockerman, Peter Burr, Larry Reynolds, Robert Smith, and Joan Harper. The group made their way to the sinkhole after refilling their air cylinders at Mount Gambier and prepared for their planned dive. Joan Harper, who had participated on the previous day's dive, had decided to sit this one out and planned instead to wait at the entry point for the divers and to make hot soup for the group after they emerged from their dive. And so it was that eight divers entered the water at about 1 p.m. on that day. Each of the divers was wearing only a single air cylinder. Although the divers had dropped a shot line down to the rock pile, they had failed to put any spare cylinders on the line, 
which would come in handy for required decomposition stops on their ascent. They carried no redundant air and no guidelines, both of which are common safety equipment used by cave divers as well as wreck divers. The divers had also failed to establish specific dive partners. Even though all the divers had experience, they failed to address serious safety concerns. By all accounts, the initial descent went smoothly, with the group arriving at the rock pile and then venturing deeper towards its perimeter, a depth of around 180 feet, or 55 meters. It was at this point that Robert Smith recognized that he was suffering from the effects of nitrogen narcosis. Knowledge gained through experience led Smith to indicate to his fellow divers, Christine Malott and Gordon Roberts, that he was returning to the top of the rock pile. Smith had previously dived at the shaft on eight separate occasions. It had been he who had established the bulk of the dive plan, but he had not expected the other divers to proceed into the further depths without him. They acknowledged Smith's intentions to ascend and then continued their descent into the depths. Smith ascended to the top of the rock pile where he almost immediately began to feel improved. He decided to descend a little to look for animal bones while he waited for his fellow divers to return. Meanwhile, the other seven divers reached a depth nearing 200 feet or about 60 meters. Here, the bottom seemed to drop off as they approached the eastern tunnel. Despite having agreed not to enter the tunnel in their earlier dive planning and agreeing not to exceed a maximum depth of 60 meters, they continued their descent directly into the eastern tunnel. As soon as they entered the tunnel, the illumination provided by the shaft of sunlight disappeared behind giant boulders. Without their dive lights, the divers would have been plunged into pitch blackness with absolutely no sense of spatial awareness nor direction. But with lights on, they proceeded into the unknown. What the divers couldn't know was that the brilliant blue shaft of light would have soon disappeared anyway with the arrival outside the cave of dense cloud cover. They had been counting on seeing the shaft on their ascent as it was like a beacon showing the way to safety. Peter Burr was the first to notice that they had strayed beyond the relative safety of their planned dive. He became concerned and indicated to Glenn Malott that he wanted to see his depth gauge, which recorded that they were indeed past 60 meters and were now at 65 meters, or almost 215 feet deep into the cave. At this point, nitrogen narcosis might well have been affecting the entire group to one extent or another. Glenn got his sister, Christine's attention, 
and showed her his depth gauge. She responded appropriately to his signals and did not show overt effects of nitrogen narcosis. But she continued her descent further into the sloping tunnel. Glenn, now feeling like he might be passing out, waited at the mouth of the tunnel for the others to come back. He assumed they were just going to see what was over a drop-off ledge at which he had stopped. Glenn could only watch with increasing unease as the other divers descended even further into the lightless zone where the only light would be that provided by their small dive lights. Not long after the other divers had ventured into the depths, Gordon, Christine, and Larry began to try to ascend. But as they did so, they bumped into an overhead roof of rock known as a false dome. False domes are exactly what they sound like. They give the appearance of being the way to the surface, but eventually dead end in solid rock. The three divers tried not to panic and frantically swept their dive lights in every direction seeking a way out. Meanwhile, Glenn, who knew his air supply was nearly exhausted, caught a brief glimpse of the shaft of sunlight as the sun momentarily broke from the heavy cloud cover. He wasted no time heading for the surface, but he flashed his dive light behind him repeatedly as he ascended hoping the other divers would see the beacon and follow it to safety. Peter, who had been below the other divers in the tunnel and was running dangerously low on air, noticed Glenn's light flash and turned to follow him. Larry was still stuck on the ceiling of the false dome with Gordon and Christine when suddenly his dive light went out. As he struggled to get his light to come back on, he descended slightly and almost collided with Peter as he was desperately following Glenn out of the tunnel. Larry was also almost out of air by this time and he began to follow Peter. Although he could still see Gordon and Christine banging against the roof of the false dome, he was unable to attract their attention and he was forced to lead them as he struggled to get back to the surface. It's believed that Gordon and Christine were both probably suffering from nitrogen narcosis by this time and were strongly under its effects. They had also reportedly kicked up silt in their desperation and the lack of visibility combined with the rapture of the deep sealed their fates. Larry reported that the last time he saw Gordon and Christine, they appeared frightened. Probably knowing that by this time, even if they found the way out, they'd never have enough air to escape the death cave. Gordon and Christine apparently held each other desperately for comfort as both drowned in the abyss. Their bodies were later found still in that death embrace. Gordon Robertson was 28 years old and Christine Malott was only 19. 
As Peter and Larry were making their exit from the tunnel, one of them looked back and saw a single diver swimming even deeper into the black depths. That was John Bockerman, who likely was under the effects of severe nitrogen narcosis and was in all likelihood unaware that he was swimming to his doom. His body would be found at the deepest depths of any of the victims. The fourth fatality on that long-ago day in May was Christine Malott's older brother, Stephen, age 22. Less is known about his final moments. He might have been lost beneath the cave ceiling. His dive light and camera were found near the base of the rock pile, but his body would later be found beneath an overhang. It's unclear if Stephen died at a deeper depth and had floated upward after death, or if he'd been attempting to surface and had become trapped in a false dome. After the survivors had surfaced, not yet knowing the fate of the other members of their dive party, they used every effort to effect a rescue. Glenn Malott, who would lose a brother and a sister that day, quickly swapped out his empty tank for an unused tank from Joan, the one who had decided not to dive on that day. Glenn went back down desperately seeking his siblings as well as the two other divers, but was unable to locate anyone. Robert also descended again and didn't find anyone either, but it was he who discovered Stephen Malott's camera and dive light near the base of the rock pile. He reported that the water was silted out and that there was nothing further anyone could do at that point. It would be nearly 11 months before all the bodies were able to be recovered from the cave. The police had made repeated dives trying to find the victims of the tragedy, but had been unable to do so, as at that time the cave had not yet been mapped out. On January 24th of 1974, an underwater film crew from Sydney making a film on diving safety, noticed an extra diver on the sloping roof of the cave, illuminated by all the movie lights. When they looked more closely, they realized that they had found the body of one of the doomed divers. That body was later determined to be Stephen Malott. A month and a half later, at the request of the landowners under which the cave sat, a team of very experienced civilian divers was hired for the body recovery. The landowners had become increasingly distressed about the remaining bodies still being trapped under their farmland. The divers were able to locate and recover the missing bodies of Christine Malott and Gordon Robertson at that time. The final body, that of John Bockerman, was recovered on the 9th of April, 1974, almost a full year after the divers had perished. His recovery had been hampered by the great depth at which his body was found, 
and by nitrogen narcosis affecting those tasked with retrieving it. I want to thank you for joining me on another episode of Darkest Nightmare. If you like this kind of content, please hit the follow button on whichever podcast provider you're using and subscribe to this channel. If you know friends or family who like to hear true tales of the supernatural, the mysterious, and the terrifying, as well as true crime and human misadventure, tell them about our show so they can listen too. Look for new releases twice weekly on Mondays and Thursdays. Please join me for the next adventure into that place where bad dreams are born. Your darkest nightmare. Darkest Nightmare is researched and written by Zane Rankin and hosted by yours truly, Grandpappy. See you next time.